Hello, I'm Mark Riley, and I'm Rob Hughes, and you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. So H is for Hansa Studios. Yeah, the Hansa Ton Studio is a recording studio founded in 1974, located in a former Builders Guild Hall on Kirchnerstrasse number 38 in the Kreuzberg district of Berlin in Germany. Famous for its Meistersaal recording hall, used to be known as Hansa Studio by the Wall or Hansa by the Wall. The record label, the Hansa label, was founded in 1962, a year after the war went up, by brothers Peter and Thomas Meisel in West Berlin. It most certainly was. And so from 1965, they temporarily rented the Areola production facilities in Meistersaal, uh, but they also built their own studio in the Hallensee neighbourhood, which opened in 1973. Now, it had to abandon its production facilities the next year, and from 1974, again, rented the Meistersaal location on the Kotnerstrasse, which is now called Studio 2 apparently, allegedly. And in the early and mid-80s, all productions were overseen by the English record producer, Michael Blakey. Now, at this point, Michael Blakey, I was very, very relieved to see that name crop up because uh, I don't want anybody getting in touch about my German pronunciation because it is going to be all over the shop. Well, yes. So, just forgiveness is called for. It was fine. It's difficult. I mean, I did German O-level, Mark. I mean, I'm I'm struggling. Did you? I'll be honest. Yeah, Yeah, I did. Okay, good work, fella. So, the studios played host to various well-known acts, including Tangerine Dream, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, Depeche Mode were there, Marillion, Susie and the Banshees, Killing Joke, Manic Street Preachers, and of course, lest we forget, Boney M. Oh, well, probably so more than the rest of them put together at one point. Yeah. So let's get to the Bowie bit. So, the, you know, obviously, Hansa Studios is a bit of a Bowie mecca, of course. It's a, you know, it's a kind of shrine, still a very special music place in a creative centre today. Back then, where the wall was standing just 200 metres away in what was then called No Man's Land, wasn't it? It was. And, uh, I mean, the weird thing is you can go there now. And it's not a weird thing, but, I mean, it is a mecca. So in Berlin, you've got Bowie's flat Mm. where you live with Iggy and people go there. I know my daughter Beth has been there. I would love to go. In fact, I've got a mate who's over there now and he's gone uh, for his 50th birthday with the sole intention of going to all of the Bowie hotspots, you know. Great. Uh, But uh, so, as you can imagine, there is a studio tour Mm. uh, for people who want to go and have a look at it. And there will be people who are mad on, I don't know, you know, Depeche Mode or whatever, you know, who want to go as well. But Bowie, I think he's got to be the main draw for it. And so the advert, should you fancy it, uh, during the studio tours, we visit former and current studio parts of the Hansa Studio building. As there are lots of recording and events going on, we can't guarantee to see all relevant parts constantly, as productions have always priority, of course. But there is no other way to see Hansa Studios just with our tours. Mm. So there's an advert there. We, yeah. we should be getting some money for that. But we won't, we, we'll, we'll gloss over that. We won't Definitely. bother. All right. Um, so Studio One and the Mix Room, it was officially in use since 1980 and the part of the house that still runs under Hansa Studios' corporate name, the biggest fans of this studio, uh, apparently Depeche Mode. Oh, is that right? Again, yeah, and they're going to yeah. be big Bowie fans, aren't yeah, they? of course. And the legendary SSL 4000D console in Hansa Blue is still used there. That's for the spods out Absolutely. there. Absolutely, so there you go. Uh, continuing the ad here, you've got the Meistersaal, which is the master hall or master room, formerly Studio Two known as the Big Hall by the Wall, used as a studio since the 60s and since become Hansa Studio 2. Not only uh, Bowie, U2, Depeche Mode loved the special acoustics of the old big room, says that you can still feel the nice reverb in there. So during company events, we show an entertaining multimedia presentation in the hall regarded to uh, the colourful history of the building itself. The former Studio 3, meanwhile, is currently famous for analogue recording techniques. We can record direct to vinyl and all the rest of it, and that's where Iggy's Lust for Life was done. And then last 
large room that you're talking about, you know, uh, the big hall by the wall and all that stuff. <laughs> um, and then uh, it's, uh, you know, most famously for the vocal performance of Heroes, where yeah. um, Tony Visconti put various microphones yeah. at various distances from Bowie, didn't he? Mm. And that, that got that kind of haunting sound. On yeah. it. So, and we'll be getting to that very, very soon. But yeah, selected recordings, Low, Heroes, The Idiot, Lust for Life, and uh, Baal, the Baal yeah. EP. Absolutely. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. Now, H is also for heroes. We did threaten this, didn't we, Bob? Mm. Uh, straight on the back of Hansa. Uh, so, Heroes, Bowie's 12th studio album, released on the 14th of October, 1977, on RCA. So, uh, after Low, it is the second instalment of the Berlin Trilogy, though it's the only one that was actually recorded in Berlin. Yeah. Bizarrely. Uh, but again, produced by Tony Visconti and David Bowie. The timeline we're looking at, the 14th of January, 1977, Low is released, March, 1977. So, again, just always quick off the heels of mm. a previous album. Bowie joins Iggy Pop on the Idiot Tour, starting off at Friars Aylesbury, obviously, uh, and playing uh, keyboards and doing backing vocals and wearing a flat cap, as I remember. And the American leg of the tour found Bowie getting on a plane for the first time since 1972. Mm. Uh, as we know, uh, he didn't like flying and got the boat and train everywhere that he possibly could. Uh, but that tour was uh, completely legendary. With, uh, I mean, we have discussed it before, mm. but just a mountain of people just racked up in front of Bowie. And, and Iggy being, yeah, you know, whether whether he was at his prime or not, quite possibly. Yeah. You know, I mean, he certainly had the wind behind him, didn't he? And he had David certainly. Bowie behind him. So, uh, yeah, he was doing it. Was, it was an amazing tour. Yeah, all the stars were aligning. So, just to give an indication about what a busy year this was for Bowie in 77, later on in March, as I say, The Idiot came out, produced by Bowie, co written with Iggy. April 77. So, Bowie's doing a promo tour of Tokyo and he meets up with uh, Masayoshi Sukita. And this is where he does the photo shoot for the hero's cover. Right. All right, at uh, Harajuku Studio. So Sakita said later that he had Bowie wearing several different layers of leather jackets to get the look he wanted. And it reminded him, he said, of Kenneth Anger's Scorpio Rising. He said the whole session was over in an hour. So just getting straight to business, you know? Yeah, and it wasn't Bowie's jacket, was it? it no, was, I don't think it, it was. It was his jacket. Yeah. And, and I don't even know if he got it back. There's some, <laughs> there is some kind of mad story there. So really? I don't know. You might turn, this might tip off on oh, Crime Watch. I'm, hey. not, I'm not entirely sure. Need to investigate. OK, so we fast forward to June 1977 now. Bowie goes into Hansa Studio 2 to begin work on Lust for Life for Iggy. Uh, and then he hangs around in Paris for a few weeks, during which time he also goes to the French premiere of The Man Who Fell to Earth. Now, that is a bit late, aren't they, the French getting hold of that? Well, where we lead and all that stuff, Bob, you know. So, um, anyway, July 1977, in an interview with Mary Bloom for the LA Times, Bowie gives his first indication of heroes, saying it'll be recorded in Berlin over a three-week time limit. Putting a time limit on yourself, doing such an, yeah. an album on such a pivotal part of your career, could be seen as bonkers. Mm. Uh, but he did say, I like the idea of playing narrative music with a sudden gem. It's like the Airs Rock in Australia, a huge rock jutting out of miles of sand. If I could write a piece of music like that rock. Great quote. So we get to the recording. So a month later, August 77, he starts to record at Hansa Studio 2. So you've got Bowie there, Tony Visconti and Brian Eno going in. Visconti, I know, it still gets annoyed at the fact that people think that Eno sort of co-produced those albums, Low and Heroes. Of course he didn't. He's on them and he's kind of helping to lead them. But it's Visconti and Bowie, of course, isn't it? He's fairy dust, isn't he? Yeah, it, it is. So uh, they go in there, the three of them go into the studio, and they've only got one song ready. This is interesting in light of the fact that you know, they put a three-week time limit on it. They've only got one song prepared, which is uh, Sons of the Silent Age. The rest were worked up in the studio. Eno said at the time, he said, not only that, everything on the album is a first take. I mean, we did second takes, but they weren't nearly as good. So Bowie actually said that at most it would take two or three takes. He explained that he didn't have to worry about the music itself, 
because the people around him were such great players, so it meant it was all about the feel. Again, that, yeah. that a recurring theme. Yeah. Eno said later it was all done in a very, very casual way. He said we sort of say, let's do this then, we do it, and then somebody would say stop, and that would be it. Seems a pretty simple way of yeah. working, doesn't it? So after a while, needing a little extra, they brought in Robert Fripp. We have been through this before, we haven't have. we? we? So have. the story goes that Fripp got off the flight from New York, freshened up, got to the studio about 11pm, and then just uh, as Visconti, Eno and Bowie started sorting out the tapes for him to hear, he sat down with his guitar and said, right, might as well try a few things. <laughs> That's great. And it worked like a dream, didn't it, from the start? So the first thing they got into, or the first thing they played to Fripp was Beauty and the Beast, and he played over the top of it just once, no rehearsals, straight in there. Yeah. Eno said, by the next day he'd finished, packed up and gone home. All first takes again, just incredible. So similarly, most of Bowie's vocals were first takes as well, sometimes written as I sang, and this was something he'd learned from working with yeah, Iggy. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? That kind of, you know, just spontaneous uh, sort of approach. So uh, Bowie he also said later, there's lots and lots of laughter in between all these takes. Uh, he says, uh, laughing at ourselves, laughing at our pretentiousness at some of the stuff that came, out, that came out of those sessions and never made it onto the album. It was rich with self-parody. He said, Berlin is not a relaxed place and it produces a kind of nervous mirth, whistling in the dark. Which is interesting, isn't it? You know, this edginess creeping in. Uh, and we've sort of touched on this as well. There were lots of sort of Pete and Dud impressions from Bowie and Eno. Uh, he said, long dialogues about John Cage performing on a prepared layer at the Bricklayer's Arm on the old Kent Road and such like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wonder if they kept the tapes rolling for that, which would have been very Pete and Dud or yeah. Derek and Clive anyway. Definitely. Uh, he said at that point, of course, Berlin was a divided city, the wall separating east from west. Tony Visconti called it one of my last great adventures in making albums. The studio was about 500 yards from the Berlin Wall. Red guards would look into our control room window with powerful binoculars. And as with Lowe, Eno used the oblique strategies cards again during the recording of the album. Mm. Um, and and there is a passage uh, from Tony Visconti's book, which is called Tony Visconti, Bowie, Bolan and the Brooklyn Boy. Yeah. And uh, I'll, I'll attempt to read it for you now. Uh, but it does set the scene really nicely for uh, what they were actually living through at that point in time. Uh, so uh, this is about them uh, going out on a recreational food jaunt. Oh, nice. Uh, at the Apollo restaurant, we had a splendid lunch served by stiffly-mannered waiters and waitresses. One of them reminded me of Frau Blucher in Young Frankenstein. Uh, the servers wore black clothes, stiffly starched shirts and long white aprons from the chest to the shoes. Next to the restaurant was the Bertolt Breck Theatre and after lunch we had a tour. We imagined the premieres of the Threepenny Opera and Mahogany. Afterwards we drove back to Checkpoint Charlie and just before the bridge into the west we noticed desperate-looking East Germans who longed to be smuggled into the Western sector. I imagined how some of these people had been cut off from their families literally overnight when the wall went up. So they're, they're working around all of this anyway, which yeah. uh, it must have added to... Well, it did add, obviously, yeah. famously, you know, there's a story of uh, Tony Visconti and the kiss by the wall mm. and all that. Uh, but he goes on about the more uh, further recreation into the night. The nightlife in Berlin gave us culture of a very different kind. We visited two very different drag clubs. Romy Hargs and the Lutz Power Lamp. Romy Hargs was a high-tech place, all very shiny and glittery. Attractive females served drinks manoeuvring on roller skates through the dense crowd, never spilling a drop. Romy, a gorgeous six-foot-plus transvestite, often lip-synced to Bowie's Port of Amsterdam, played at double speed. Often there were as many as eight performers frantically lip-syncing at the same time on a very small stage, maybe ten feet wide. Strobe lights were also going off, which made the performances even more frenetic. So they were, they were enjoying themselves as well at the time, weren't yeah. they? And all of this feeding into the album itself. Yeah, that's a great description, isn't it? It's so vivid, that. So we get onto the songs, obviously starting with side one. 
Uh, so Beauty and the Beast, the first tune. I mean, it's a great way to open this album, isn't it? You've got Fripp's improvised guitar all over it. You've got the treatments and synths by Eno. And it's a brilliant vocal by Bowie. Uh, and there's a line in there, isn't there? Someone fetch a priest, which apparently is an allusion to uh, Visconti's habit during the sessions of swearing a lot. And his swearing phrase would be, someone, eh, eh, a priest. I actually thought you were going to say he was, uh, that he thought the place was haunted because he thought the uh, Chateau de Ouvril was haunted, yeah, didn't that's he? Right, he yeah. was convinced about it. Yeah, but, he was. Yeah, nobody else was. Uh, OK, so Joe the Lion, written and recorded at the microphone in less than an hour. Oh. Just incredible, according to Visconti, an indicator of the off-the-cuff nature of much of the album. Bowie said later that this was really Fripp having a bash at the blues. And the song itself is a, a tribute, in part anyway, to performance artist Chris Burden, who mm. became notorious in 1974 when he nailed himself to a Volkswagen of having an assistant shoot him in the arm at an art gallery in 1971. This is extreme art, isn't it? Call this me really old-fashioned. Mm. So well, let's get to the title track, shall we? Next one up, Heroes, which is a Bowie classic, of course. It's worth mentioning he did at the same time record a version in French, Hero, yep. and uh, Helden uh, in German, which he did before the English take. So I wonder, interesting with yeah, the kind of the chronology there, whether yeah, the English take was sort of influenced by the German one. Right, OK. All right. So it's also, of course, a bit of a doff of the cap, a bit of a tribute to uh, Hero by Noise. And Michael Rother was initially slated to play guitar on the album, wasn't it? And it's a, such a great towering vocal by Bowie. And there's Fripp, who's... Uh, Apparently, he, he, he achieved that distinctive guitar sound by just obviously feeding back on himself and then just sitting in various places around the studio so that it would alter the pitch. Uh, yeah, but not only that, I mean, I think uh, Tony Visconti takes some of the credit, rightly, uh, mm. by the look of it, because he uh, they, they were looking to see the way that they could use the different guitar takes, and then yeah. he, he just faded them all up at the same time, and this magical sound came out. Uh, and again, you know, he does mention the fact that before the days of computers, you know, m- matching stuff up and making sure that all of the tape machines start at the exact same point, it, it wasn't that easy. I mean, you know, I go back in radio like 28 years, and I started editing with a razor blade and tape. You know, oh, did you? Right. Yeah, okay. and and so uh, really difficult. You might have five different spools going at yeah. one, or six different spools going at one different time. Uh, which would make it really difficult to get everything in sync. So, I mean, he did an amazing job on Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Really Real laborious process. So the lyrics, of course, you've alluded to this before. Two lovers, one from the East, one from the West, um, meeting by the wall, inspired by Visconti, of course, who was um, one of them. So Visconti and his backing vocalist, uh, Antonio Mas, had a bit of a clinch, didn't they, as Bowie mm. was looking out of the studio window one day. Naughty, naughty, though, because Visconti was married to Mary Hopkin at the time. And Mary found out. She did. She did. Okay, so uh, Sons of the Silent Age, uh, Bowie himself said at one point Sons of the Silent Age could easily have been the title of the album rather than Heroes, but yeah. it wasn't. Uh, Blackout, loads of speculation about what this is about. Bowie said it was about power cuts, which we can mm. assume isn't isn't really true. <laughs> well, it's not all about lighting candles, is it? No, it not being now have a cup of tea. No, it isn't. The NME said uh, it suggested it had overtones of Bowie's personal blackout in Berlin because he'd collapsed and been rushed to hospital. Yeah. Uh, noting the line, get me to the doctors. Other people have sort of picked up on a reference, a possible reference to uh, Bowie's uh, sort of estranged wife, Angie, who just arrived in Berlin around the same time. Uh, you know, someone's back in town and the chips are down. Well, that's in the complete David Bowie, isn't it? The brilliant book by yeah. Nicholas Pegg. Yeah, absolutely. Hello, Nick. Uh, so, side two, V2 Schneider, uh, legendarily inspired by Kraftwerk's Florian Schneider earlier in 1977. Uh, Kraftwerk also name-checked Bowie and Iggy on the title track of Trans Europe Express, most instrumental and it also references the V2 rocket, the first ballistic missile which had been developed in Germany during World War II. Mm. The only words sung are those in the title as we know, distorted by phasing and Bowie plays a bit of sax. Yeah, sense of doubt 
an instrumental like Low. So, you know, Heroes has its rock side and its ambient side. But what's interesting is Low is often seen as the album where Bowie's working through his personal demons and really the dark stuff. Whereas, you know, the instrumentals on there are fairly kind of light and airy, you know, a bit more atmospheric. Whereas the ones on here are definitely more dark and claustrophobic, aren't they, on Heroes? Yeah, you know? well, the word is foreboding. That Absolutely. Is yeah. uh, so Eno suggested that the edgy kind of darkness in the song itself was a result of him and Bowie each following different or kind of, you know, opposing oblique strategies cards. So Eno said, make everything as similar as possible. Bowie said, emphasise differences. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. <laughs> you could sit there for a week just pondering which way to negotiate those, really, yeah. but, you know. Um, yeah, so Moss Garden, co-written with Eno, and the track features Bowie plucking a koto, the traditional Japanese string instrument. Yeah, you got Noikon, which is another Eno co-write instrumental, named after the district in Berlin where all the Turkish immigrants used to be housed. Yeah, that's right. I'm pretty sure that the four played a gig in that area. Oh, did you? Yeah, and and uh, there was a big wedding going on when we turned up for the sound check, and so we had to wait for the uh, the Turkish wedding right. to take place. And the, and I remember the bride coming out with money pinned to her dress, ah. and yeah, that's all just a, a memory that just came flooding back then. Wow. Um, and I think it's right. Uh, the Secret Life of Arabia this time with Carlos Alomar getting a writing credit alongside Eno and David Bowie, and an upbeat way to finish. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it did take me a while to get into Heroes, not the song, oh. or not the not the more uh, accessible ones, but yeah, it, I did. I didn't find it a very warm album, and I didn't find it a very instant album. Obviously, it's a, it's an absolute nailed-on classic. Oh yeah, I personally do prefer Low, but it, Heroes now is seen as like Bowie's flagship song, almost in a way, yeah, it isn't is. it? It is. You know, I mean, people embrace it and use it, and if there is any celebration to be had, then you know, if there's going to be music involved, quite often it will involve Bowie's Heroes. Yeah, definitely. I think it's hard to, ooh, you know, to put a wafer between Low and Heroes really as albums because they both have the wonderful points, you know, Absolutely. the real sort of positive points. And Bowie has his usual band with him, of course. He's got Alomar in there, Dennis Davis and George Murray as the uh, sort of a rhythm section. You know, Robert Fripp for a day course, and uh, Antonia Maas, as mentioned before, on backing vocals. Right. Just a quick note about the cover, because you've got heroes in quotation marks, haven't you, which Bowie said it was, uh, you know, to demonstrate a level of irony, said to indicate a dimension of irony about the word heroes, or about the whole concept of heroism. Right, okay. Um, so the release, as we know, I mean, this is a famous, RCA decided to go with a full-on ad campaign that said, there's old wave, there's new wave, and there's David Bowie, and how true was that? You yeah. know, it made number three in the UK album charts, and stayed on the charts for 26 weeks, peaked at number 35 in the US, which isn't good enough US. Must do better. Very uh, cool. But yeah, I mean, you look at that old wave and new wave, and so Bowie oh. just rode his way through them all, didn't he? Quite absolutely, easily. absolutely. Critics were all over it. They loved it. So it's album of the year in both Melody Maker and The Enemy. Uh, Rolling Stone said it was a step up from low, a successful union of Bowie's dramatic instincts and Eno's unshakable sonic serenity. They yeah, said. well, dramatic it certainly is, Bob, you'd have to say. The enemy, among the most mature and trenchant Bowie has achieved. Melody Maker called it amongst the most adventurous and challenging records yet thrust upon the rock audience. So comparing it to Lowe, Bowie himself said it was far more psychotic. He said, by now I was living full-time in Berlin, so my own mood was good, but those lyrics come from a nook in the unconscious. Still a lot of uh, house cleaning going on, I feel. Right. A few years later, interesting to note that John Lennon, going in to record Double Fantasy, said he wanted to do something as good as heroes. So, you know, Bowie's kind of a template for John Lennon at this point. Really? Because wasn't the other story that he heard Queen's crazy little thing called love and that made him decide to get on the rock and roll 
bandwagon again. I think it was Queen and also B-52s, wasn't it? I think. Was it? Yeah. Right, okay. All right, then. So, uh, obviously, uh, Bowie appeared on Top of the Pops doing Heroes, originally released as a single on the 23rd of September 1977, three days after Mark Boland's funeral. And there is a story in uh, Roger Griffin's Golden Years book about Bowie going to see his uh, childhood home in Brixton afterwards, yeah. dropping in to see it. And this is great. And then stopping off to take a look at Haddon Hall, more of which later, at which point his old landlord... Ralph Hoy saw him and came out with a bill for unpaid rent. I love that. So he'd been waiting. <laughs> he'd been waiting since 1973 oh. <laughs> by the window with a bill in his hand for David Bowie, knowing full well that one day David Bowie yeah. would turn up. And the meantime, you know, been off living in New York, LA, Switzerland, and yeah. Berlin. Yeah, oh, yeah. hey. So Bowie appeared on Top of the Pops on 19th of October that year, singing live over a new backing track, which we'll get to in a minute, which was formed with, recorded with a one off band. This is a month after he finished uh, filming these, his appearances on. Mark Boland's TV show and Bing Crosby's Christmas special, CB for both of those. Bowie's first Top of the Pops appearance in four years since Gene Genie. Right, OK. And the day before, Bowie arrived in London and headed straight to Tony Visconti's Good Earth Studios in Soho for the recording session with Visconti, pianist Sean Mays and guitarist Ricky Gardner. And Mays band Fumble had opened for Bowie and the Spiders back in 1972, hadn't they? I don't even know if I've ever heard Fumble. I don't know Fumble at right, all. Right, OK. Uh, I'd heard nothing from him in five years, Mays told David Curry in an interview. Then out of the blue came a phone call to do Heroes for Top of the Pops. Wow. Uh, Ricky Gardner, which we've covered before, also played guitar, of course, on Low, Lustful Life and Iggy's 1977 tour. Uh, Bowie sort of taped his appearance at the BBC studios, accompanied by the new backing track for uh, heading back to Soho with Visconti for a nice drink. Very nice. And the next day, Bowie told the melody makers Alan Jones at the Dorchester Hotel that his unprecedented amount of promotion was to prove my belief in the album. Both Low and Heroes have been met with confused reactions. That was to be expected, of course, but I didn't promote Low at all, and some people thought my heart wasn't in it. Yeah, he went on to say, this time I wanted to put everything into pushing my new album. I believe in the last two albums you see more than anything I've ever done before. The H is for Tony Hatch. Yeah, Anthony Peter Hatch, to be precise, born 30th of June 1939, or you might know him as Fred Nightingale or even Mark Anthony. Mark Anthony, <laughs> I absolutely love that. Uh, Tony Hatch, English composer of theatre and television, also a noted songwriter, pianist, arranger and producer. Born in Pinner, Middlesex, encouraged by his musical abilities, his mum, who was also a pianist, enrolled him in the London Choir School in uh, Wonsunt Road in Bexley in Kent when he was 10. You have to wonder if that's a typo, don't you? <laughs> Wonsunt Road. <laughs> yeah, I think I'll just get... Next time I go to London, which isn't often, I will hop in a cab and say... Driver, one Sunt Road, please. I have got an A to Z at home. I'll have a look. <laughs> you use it, mate. OK. So instead of continuing at the Royal Academy of Music, he left school in 1955 and found a job with Robert Mellon Music in London's Tin Pan Alley. Uh, so not long after working as a, yes, you guessed, a tea boy, which is where everybody <laughs> seems to start, he was writing songs and making a name for himself within the record industry, joining the rank organisation's new subsidiary, Top Rank Records. I love that. I mean, I suppose it is, you go in with the idea of being able to write a song and then them not like allowing you to do it until yeah. you paid your dues and mm. the dues seem to be making tea for yeah, people absolutely great it seems to work uh, there he worked for future Decca Records A&R man Dick Rowe and whilst he served his national service he became involved with the band of the Cold Scream Guards ah ok Dick Rowe isn't he notorious for turning down the Beatles that's the is same he? Dick Rowe oh, isn't is that it? The yeah that's All the right. guy so uh, when he came back in 1959, Hatch began producing top-ranked artists like Burt Whedon, the great Burt Whedon, uh, the then-unknown Adam Faith on the song Our Poor Little Baby, Josh McRae, uh, Jackie Dennis, I love this, carry-on comedy actor Kenneth Connor. Brilliant. 
covering all bases and the Knightsbridge Strings started his own recording career with a cover version of Russ Conway's piano instrumental, Side Saddle. It's a classic. So 1961, Hatch moved to a part-time job with Pie Records where he assisted his new mentor, Alan A. Freeman, oh. with a recording of Sailor, a number one hit for Petula Clark, who he also wrote Dead Downtown for. Didn't yeah, yeah. An absolute nailed-on classic. Uh, so Hatch continued to write songs for Pie artists, sometimes under the pseudonym of Mark Anthony, which we've already <laughs> mentioned, including the popular Messing About on the River for Josh McRae. Oh. I know the Max Bygraves version. I'm no purist. Right, mate. 1963, <laughs> uh, Philadelphia teen idol Bobby Rydell hit the charts with Forget Him, mm. written and produced by Hatch, who went on to produce, arrange and write for other American stars such as Chubby Checker, Connie Francis, Pat Boone, uh, Big D Irwin and Keely Smith. I don't know Big D Irwin, do you? You do now. In 1964, under the pseudonym Fred Nightingale, <laughs> he wrote the searches hit Sugar and Spice. Now, what? he might have been able to write tunes and produce and all that, but he, he, he was rubbish with pseudonyms. These aren't good pseudonyms, are they? I presume he had to, though. Maybe he was sort of compromised by his other jobs at the time. Possibly. Uh, whilst at Pie, he produced many other artists, The Settlers, The Viscounts, Julie Grant, Benny Hill, Roy Budd, The Montanas, uh, Mickey and Griff, Emile Ford, Bruce Forsyth, Norman Vaughan, Buddy Greco. This is a, a you know, this is an eclectic mix here. It is. Sasha Distel, Sweet Sensation, and, and this is why we're here, <sighs> David Bowie. At last, okay. So Bowie-related projects. Well, the first one, Can't Help Thinking About Me, a really yeah. great song. And it was uh, David Bowie in the lower third, the B-side, and I Say to Myself, released the 14th of January, 1966. It was recorded in the December of 1965. Mm. Written by Bowie, produced by Hatch, of course. It's the first single released after he changed his name from uh, David, or, or Davy Jones, to David Bowie which is interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it was the first David Bowie record to be released in the US as well and the first time the name Bowie appeared under the songwriter's credits. Mm. The song was recorded uh, within 15 days of the 18-year-old Bowie signing to Pi uh, as David Bowie with The Lower Third, which happened on the 25th of November 1965 through, of course, Tony Hatch. Yeah, absolutely. Hatch signed Bowie to the label based on two demos to the song we've already mentioned and now you've met the London Boys, as it was originally titled, uh, proffered by Bowie's then-manager, Ralph Horton, more of which in a bit. Yep, uh, the single and B-side were both recorded in the basement of Pi's offices in Great Cumberland Place on the 10th of December 1965. Tony Hatch also played the piano on it, and he mm. also did backing vocals along with the rest of the group, so he's really hands-on, fair yeah. play to him. And th- I love this bit. The single was promo-launched by Pi on the 6th of January 1966 at the Gaiety Bar, Bayswater. The launch party for Pi Records staff and music journalists was paid for by a loan from businessman Raymond Cook, an agreement which took several years to untangle and eventually pay back. That's, I've never heard of anything like that in my life. Well, do you know, going through the research for all this Bowie stuff, this happens quite a lot. You know, they'd look to, uh, just for whatever funds they could get hold of, they'd look to local businessmen, whatever, you know, electrical store owners, whatever, yeah, just yeah. for some extra bit of cash. It's true, Bob. You know? Yeah. Uh, among those who attended this launch party in Bayswater that night was John Lennon's dad, Alfred, who was also signed to the Pie label as an artist. Couldn't make this up, could you? Lennon's senior's presence was recalled as him being highly inebriated and asking the attendees, do you know who I am? <laughs> no. <laughs> Not a clue, Bubba. <laughs> Meanwhile, Can't Help Thinking About Me was officially uh, released on the uh, 14th of January, later released in the States by Warner Brothers in May 66. However, the lower third had split from Bowie on the 28th of Jan over financial disagreements regarding who was being paid what mm. with manager Ralph Horton. Yeah, so believing Bowie was not supporting their side of the argument, Graham Rivens, Phil Lancaster and Dennis Taylor ended 
the short-lived collaboration and reluctantly walked away, literally weeks after the record deal with Pi Records. Uh, so that was a real stumbling block. The single failed to make either the UK or the US charts, despite being reasonably well-received by the critics at the time. Yeah, so after dropping the song from his gigs after the middle of 66, although Bowie played it several times with his new band The Buzz at uh, the marquee, due to have been released in the States in May, Can't Help Thinking About Me was eventually resurrected 31 years later and played live uh, regularly in 1999, as well as on Bowie's VH1 Storytellers programme. I mean, he must have had a soft spot for that tune because, uh, you know, it ended up on the uh, demos for Toy. Well, it also ended up on the session that he did for Mark Radcliffe and I, and that was the one whereby he was, uh, we met him when he was coming into Maida Vale and we were going out for a sandwich or something, bumped into him, uh, which was highly likely anyway, because we were going to spend the day with him. Oh, he said, yeah, I believe one of you wants me to do um, Driving Saturday. I said, don't. Oh, yeah, if you don't mind. Yeah. He said, yeah, sure, anything else. And he showed me the set list that they were doing at the time. I was like, can't help thinking about me. Could you do that? He said, yeah, yeah, of course we can, yeah. And he did. Prior to singing it, he explained that it was a beautiful piece of solipsism. Then told the audience that the song featured two of the worst lines he felt he'd ever written. I love this. I actually have to sing this. My girl calls my name. Hi, Dave. Drop in. Come back. See you around of you this way again. Yeah, it's a great song. I absolutely love it. Uh, a key collector's item today because of its rarity, as you can imagine. The UK vinyl release averages over £600 a copy and the uh, demo copy from the US, £1,000. Oh, yeah. And the single has been re-released loads of times, as we say, you know. And, uh, yeah, Bowie obviously liked it. Had a absolutely. Soft spot for it. Yeah. Move on to Do Anything You Say, which was released on the 1st of April, 66. Not a good omen there, Mark, perhaps. No, but a great song. Yeah. Written by Bowie again, produced by Hatch. Uh, despite featuring Bowie's backing band at the time, the Buzz, the single was to be the first single credited to Bowie alone, which is, mm. you know, this is a crucial point, isn't it? So mm. you've got the Buzz there, John Hutchinson on guitar, Derek Fernley on bass, John Eager on drums, Derek Boys on keyboards. OK, so the follow-up is I Dig Everything Again, just love it. And yeah. I came to these when they were reissued uh, on an EP in about 1973, might have been. Yeah, but, me too. Uh, yeah, really great. Originally demoed with the Buzz, but Tony Hatch was unhappy with their efforts and replaced them with session players. So the song was performed in 1966-67 as a rewritten version by 123 Later Clouds, which David Bowie heard played at the Marquee Club in early 1967. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, discussing that, I mean, we're going to look at Hutch anyway, aren't we? But, we are, yeah. But, you know, I mean, yeah, it was that old thing of getting rid of musicians who weren't quite up yeah. to scratch and bringing in your Jimmy Page, your Big Jim yeah. Sullivan, Clem Clatini or whoever, Yeah, you know? and just projecting the star, you know, he's the main man. Yeah. That's what you should be looking at. So, despite that, I dig everything, the single was an Another commercial flop, Bowie's last recording on Pi. Stronger efforts were made both lyrically and musically with their impact heightened by a characteristic Tony Hatch production on that. So these songs we talked about figured very heavily in Bowie's live set and while sales were still, you know, pretty negligible, a recognisable style was emerging in his music. It really was, you know, and um, you'd have to say that yeah, Tony Hatch's production style is really recognisable. It's, it's a big sound, you know, yeah. and a, a big stomping sound and, and, and he did a great job on all those records. The A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley and recorded and edited by Howard Nock. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode... Heathen. Haddon Hall. The Hype. 